Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Well, hello, dear friends. Welcome back to another rant-filled session, I mean, episode of Fantasy for Our Time (laughs) with Richard Rowland for our third conversation on the rings of power. Richard, it's lovely to have you back. Uh, I'm very happy to be here. And uh, before we get started, we do want to always try to start on a positive note. So Richard has some lovely news for all of us who are interested in fantasy media type stuff. So Richard, take yeah. it away. Well, okay. So um, I'm really big on, we need to be telling our own stories. If you don't want big evil corporations like Amazon, just as an example, not <laughs> and there we to, go. Not the related to anything else. Right out the window. <laughs> <laughs> but if you don't want big corporations kind of like controlling your imagination and really most importantly, I think your children's imaginations, we need to be telling our own stories. I've been very open about, uh, how I believe that uh, tabletop gaming can be a wonderful and effective way to do this. And uh, so I am sort of putting my money where my mouth is, my writing where my mouth is. Um, And that is, uh, I have a fantasy setting that I've been working on for about 20 years now called The World Under Starlight. And I, um, and uh, earlier this summer, we published a little book with Darkly Bright Press um, called The Akborida. And there's actually a new production run of that out. Uh, so it'll be available November the 1st. Uh, That's to too Darkly. long. It should be earlier. <laughs> well, it's because they're, they want to, they want to like save, save the new production run for the, the Inklings Festival at Eighth Day, which is where it will be released. And I'll be there signing books. And Which then, means there won't be any available for any of us poor people who are not going. Well, to festival, I, I right? think that Brilliant. we did a few more copies this time. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, we'll, we'll save okay. one for you, Father. But thank um, you. <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, so that's coming up. But 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 um, after uh, after some uh, uh, a little bit of back and forth the last few weeks, I've been really excited uh, that I f- I'm very excited that I finally get to announce that we are going to be releasing an Amboria tabletop role-playing game um it won't yes. just be a tabletop role-playing game it'll be a tabletop role-playing game with a massive amount of lore and by lore i mean poetry it'll be the most poetry ever poetry heavy role-playing game that's ever been released um <laughs> i say that with absolute confidence um uh it's and absolute be, seriousness too absolute seriousness yeah it'll be uh there'll be a core book with uh three adventures which are enough for a beautiful miniature mini campaign um, and then also there's going to be um, uh, a big campaign book that you could get many years of one of play out of. And that's going to be released for our own in-house system called the Clash system, which is what, I, what I've been running it with here at my house for the last four years. And then also it'll, there will be an OGL version released. So if you're one of those people who can't be bothered to learn new rules, 
uh, but you're used to D&D 5th edition, then that'll be an easy kind of way for you to get into it. Um, if that goes really well, there will be more stuff. I have lots and lots of plans. So if people go out and buy it, then that'll make sure it happens. So there will be a Kickstarter sometime in the spring, probably March or April. Um, mm-hmm. And that'll be where you can go and get this these books. And in the meantime, I will be doing probably weekly development vlogs um, oh, cool. on my YouTube channel. Uh, you can just go Fantastic. look for Richard Wolin on YouTube. Um, and so starting next week, I'm going to be doing weekly development vlogs. Um, yeah. So Noel asks, how do you find out about the Kickstarter, especially if you're not on Facebook? If you just follow me on YouTube, um, if you look up Richard Wolin on YouTube, um, I have a little channel there where I've done like four or five videos, you know, um, but but there's going to be a lot more stuff because I'm going to start doing weekly videos on the project so that's the best way to keep up with it um you can also go to um we're going to be published by the game's going to be published by strange owl games uh, is the name of the company um this is a great new tabletop uh gaming company that is actually just a uh uh was part of a part of a much larger company and they sort of spun this off so um it's strangeowlgames.com all one word um and basically everything is going to be there and i'm going to just ask people who are listening to this uh live don't tell anybody until tuesday which is when the official announcement (laughs) will come out but um i can talk about it now because uh all the contracts have been signed and we're officially in business so i'm really excited about this i think at some point father you and i will get together and talk about this some more um and talk about the talk about the importance of it as uh and as a method of subcreation and things like that so yeah, yeah, we we have That's, we have such conversations in the yeah in the pipeline so many for conversations sure. and, to have yeah well you know why not and Noel to answer your question also um, I will be telling you all about it repeatedly so don't worry about it you will hear you don't need to be on Facebook to know anything in fact just ignore it ignore Facebook just get stay off, off Facebook. of Facebook yes with sure. that pleasant thought of avoiding social media etc let's start talking about episodes six and seven of the rings of power now mm-hmm. i think i'm going to be going on a long uh a long bit of richard less conversation here because we're starting with the positives richard and apparently okay. you have none to, you have none to say so i'm going to go for a while I, well probably. i definitely i mean maybe i have some things that well okay just go ahead and start i'll chime in just just start That's good all right okay so um i have to say that uh I skipped through much of episode six battle just because, okay, I'll, I'll be, and here we go. This is not me, me being positive, but um, <laughs> uh, this is the way to enjoy episode six and seven. Now, if you're somebody who likes uh, mindless action that has no purpose, uh, then go ahead, watch episode six. It's for you. You're going to enjoy a lot of it, especially if you enjoyed episode one of the new Wheel of Time series. I think it was choreographed by the same people. It's about the same level of um, intelligent action. Um, so I didn't know it was choreographed by the same people. I don't know either. It just feels like it. So I'm just assuming that it is. I don't know that it is. But let's just say that you are with me and you've skipped through most of the uh, stupid fighting. Uh, There are some really nice things that happen, I think, in episode six and seven, especially episode seven. But there is more and more, the further we get away from that fateful um, and unfortunate line of you have to touch the darkness to to know the light or whatever it was, because it's not important to remember the actual line. Um, I'm really liking that they're, they seem to be, if not in the dialogue, but at least in the action and in the interaction of the characters, they seem to be going away from that comment as the guiding light of uh, of series, season one, which is 
I think we were all afraid that that was going to be what was what was happening, especially in the in the friendships of uh, Durin and Elrond, and even Galadriel and, and Halbrand. Now I'll explain uh, a little bit what I mean. I really think that the Durin and Elrond uh, friendship was beautifully rendered in Episode Seven. Um, Agreed. I think that finally we got past. Let's make fun of the dwarves thing. Let's let's uh, stop using dwarves as the butt of all of our jokes. We finally got past that, and we let the actors just play the character as a person. And Elrond um, really surprised me in his in his real humility as a character, and the character and the actor's ability to to show it, the sincerity of the friendship that didn't have at all of a saccharine quality to it. I really liked that they weren't fudging it in my face that they're friends they're friends they're friends it was just happening on screen there was a lot of stuff happening in between uh spoken lines there was a lot of good camera angles it felt like a really um well-realized friendship so that Doran's decision first to uh, countermand his father's command in the beginning and then as this will probably happen he's probably going to depose him in some way in, in episode eight is what i think is going to happen um which is a di very difficult thing to set up in a realistic way, especially in a Tolkien-inspired world, because any sort of um, <laughs> any sort of action against established order, especially in a monarchic uh, in a monarchic world, you're going to have to really do a lot of work to make it work. I think they did a really nice job, because it's clear that what Doran the Third is doing is wrong, and the reason that what he's doing is wrong is not is not because of the racism of the <laughs> of the dwarves, but because it doesn't allow for virtue to be expressed through relationship. And they're doing that really well with Durin and Elrond. And even in Gal Gal Galadriel and Halbrand, although there was still that bizarre like specter of possible romance that was going on that I didn't understand, um, that I didn't like, but they're both good for each other in the sense that they're preventing each other from allowing the darkness to engulf them totally. And it's because of their friendship, not because of the romance, I think. And both of those are making, are actually... Uh, engaging me in a way that I didn't expect to be engaged uh, after episode two or three. So I'm happy about that. Okay, so Galadriel and Halbrand, just to, to to kind of mention the romance thing, an article did come out with the actress who plays Galadriel talking about the sexual tension between the characters. Um, and as a thing that's part of the show? As a thing that's part of the show, uh, defining it as sexual tension and <laughs> saying... And saying that Galadriel is afraid of what she's going to do because she knows that she always gets whatever she wants, but it's not always good for her. Okay. And I hate when actors talk. <laughs> I think actors should stop talking because that was not necessarily what was going on. It didn't have to the, be, but now, no, now they're sort of but identifying it, it and saying, <laughs> yeah. So that's the thing. Like there was that moment at the end of the episode. I was like, eh, I'm not sure I like how this is going. Mm -hmm. And then they, uh, but then the actress came out and confirmed, yeah, it's intended to be sexual tension. Um, and that they're going to, this is going to be an aspect going on in the rest of the show. And uh, with the reveal that Galadriel actually has been married. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. Finally, Calibor makes an appearance. <laughs> I mean, okay. Right. So talk to me about that, Richard. Talk to me about that. Okay. Was, so, so I, go ahead. So I've been saying for a while that it's a major lacuna in Galadriel's character that she's not married at this point. Um, yeah. The, the so clearly they heard you. 
and they stuck it in clearly they heard me and they said yeah no so i mean because the thing <laughs> is like uh married galadriel is a totally kind of a different it's just a totally different animal right totally different yeah. character um for all the reasons that we talked about in previous episodes mm -hmm. and and i continue to believe very strongly that this version of the character even with the improvements that we saw in her in episode seven where she's trying to yeah. help theo walk away from the darkness so he doesn't repeat her mistakes that was yes. nice that was, was actually true. a conversation i liked okay yep. so there's a there's a thing i liked. yeah but uh but i continue to feel that uh this this character is a totally total mischaracterization to the point yes. that she's not really galadriel at all she's something else right i've stopped thinking of her as galadriel actually and that helped yeah. me enjoy episode seven more but uh the fact that she actually was married to Celeborn and he's basically mia yes um he's clearly uh, gonna which, show up as part he's of clearly character. gonna show up and now that now the 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 part of me that grew up in a house full of sisters where we watched way too many christie movies um i don't know <laughs> not if this a bad is a, problem to have this is i wonderful. don't know if this is a reference <laughs> anybody else gets but um uh the the i i have a deep fear that what we're going to end up getting is a love triangle where she's going to progressively fall for halbrand and then yeah. Celeborn's going to show up and it's going to be like oh your husband is not actually dead he was just captured by the, by the bad guys and is probably super tortured like i don't know what they're going to do and at this yeah. point i cannot accurately predict what the phil what the show writers are because they are don't seem to be for. following any sort of logic so let's just hope that your logic yeah. which is very good is, is going wrong. to be ignored by yes. the showrunners who seem to be ignoring logic consistently and they're just going to do the good thing which is to make uh Celeborn part of her arc of becoming the right. the fully the Galadriel recognizable Galadriel yeah. yeah yeah I hope that's what we're gonna get the other thing that um the other kind of wrinkle in the whole Halbrand Galadriel thing is that I think after episode six is very clear that Halbrand is definitely probably half of sauron half of sauron yeah so if you okay uh all right theory time i so asked if, if, okay here we go yeah so if you if you listen to what adar says mm -hmm. he says that like halbron clearly remembers adar yeah and keeps asking like do you recognize me do you know mm -hmm. me do you know who i am etc cetera, etc cetera. right what adar says when he's talking about sauron is that you know sauron's quest for um Sauron's quest for you know basically what's going to end up being the one ring yeah is uh was destroying all of Adar's children and so Adar mm -hmm. split mm -hmm. him in half that's what he says he, he says, said I, he said split him open he didn't say split him in half he said did he not are you sure yeah I think so I think he said I split him in two okay we'll go back and uh, yeah, you guys, we'll, have to, audience, we'll have to confirm that. <laughs> you don't have to go back and look, audience. I will go back and look for you to save you okay. <laughs> watching episode six again. But um, uh, but I, but he says something like this, and the the input that I'm getting from that, plus all of the ominous uh, foreshadowings regarding uh, Helbron, for instance. You mean bludgeoning across the forehead? Is that what you mean by foreshadowing? yes that's the one yeah, okay All right, um, got it. i yep. think i think that it is uh i think that it is quite likely that there's like a sort of like there's a good sauron and a bad sauron out there oh God, and no. you gotta no, be kidding I'm me that would be sure the worst i i'm not saying <laughs> oh it's gonna God. be good but i think that is where things are going is that oh how Bra how brand is like the good half 
but maybe he's got a little bad in him, you know, and, but out there somewhere, there's like a bad half of Sauron. And at some point they're going to, no, I don't think so. Noel, uh, Noel asks if the fallen star wizard is the, is the power part of Sauron? I don't think so. I still don't really get what's going on with the stranger, but who knows? They, maybe. they keep showing, they keep showing the moon. It's really weird. They keep showing the moon in in reference to the yeah, it and shows they up again tr- and again and again. And I've seen some people theorize that he's supposed to be the man of the moon. Like I think it's a red moon. herring. Yeah, I I can't imagine they would do the puzzle box the storytelling. Likes to give you details that have no meaning. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, so I think that's quite likely that Halbrand is just like half of Sauron running around, and at some point he's gonna get like the rest of his Sauron juice back, and he's gonna be Sauron, which will m- have meant that. Galadriel had sexual tension with Sauron. That's really lame. So you're, I, you're thinking it's like he's divided his force into like a, the physical part and the unseen part, and the unseen part is out there somewhere, like gathering power, and then it like will possess him. Something like this. Something like this. Maybe, maybe, or it's it's in like a stupid kind of a Horcrux sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, right. Okay. <laughs> I, I I think that I I think that I think that at some point Halbron is going to. Like he's not currently like full Sauron, but at some point he's going to become that. That's that's kind of my current feel. Again, there could be a lot of red herrings, but just based on the vibe that they were trying to give us in episode six, mm-hmm, yeah, um, uh, you know, over and over again. Um, and also, yeah. it's not totally clear unless I missed it in episode six. It's not totally clear how the uh, the lightsaber that is a key was was given <laughs> to the bad guys, yeah. but. Um, Halbrand may have done the switcheroo. That's kind of my. No, Adar gives it to Walt to to the man before before. Oh, okay, okay. Before okay. Numenor comes, so I, I must have. You don't see. That. You don't see it on. It happens very quickly. You don't see it. Oh, on okay. Screen. It was but like no, a it's, week. It's, it's been like a week or so since. Uh... Yeah. So no, okay. It, so it was a throwaway can, scene. So yeah. Can we talk about then the uh, like the whole, whole Numenor thing? Okay, let's talk about the whole Numenor thing. We're gonna so, jump. Uh, we're not. We're not gonna be all positive and then move to those negative. We're just gonna. Just gonna embrace. I mean, embrace the chaos, baby. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean the. I mean, ep- so episode six really bugged me. I, I found more <laughs> things that I liked in episode seven, but episode six really bugged me for a whole host of reasons. Um, and and not just on a oh you you changed the Tolkien story guys. Um, mm-hmm. not just on that level. Yeah, but on the level of bad cinematography yeah bad choreography yep and like really kind of like sloppy continuity errors i don't know if you spotted it or saw people talking about it but they literally copy and pasted a bunch of extras over and over again in one scene and i didn't notice i wasn't paying attention (laughs) so if you go back and look at the scene where uh uh uh, bronwyn is addressing the people and she's giving her pretty inspirational speech Pretty lousy inspirational speech. Adar's they can't do inspirational speech speeches. Yes. Okay. So Adar better. and the orcs are are by far the most interesting characters in the entire show. Why far. are they the best people in the show? I don't know. I don't. Really, I, I really hate. I really, really don't like this. Frustrates me. Yeah. Yes. So so Broadwin's giving her. We'll come back to that. Yes. So Broadwin <laughs> is giving her inspirational speech, and the 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 camera pans out of over the crowd, and if you just pause it, you can see that they have the same clump of people mm-hmm. that they have copied pasted rotated a few degrees to one direction or the other all the way across the screen no um if you look closely at like just like freeze frame on some of the numenorian armor 
a yeah. lot of it is just like screen printed onto fabric. <gasps> like, and so this is one of those things where the scene where everybody was getting on the boat and we saw the new Minorians in their armor the first time, mm -hmm. that was beautiful. And I think yeah. it had to do somewhat with like the ethereal lighting and all this other mm -hmm. stuff. But once, basically, once they get to Middle Earth, once there are actual action scenes, the money ran out. <laughs> well, it, it it really feels like that, and I don't get it because they're spending like sixty million dollars an episode on this thing, mm -hmm. and uh, it's the most expensive you know show ever produced, and yet um, yeah. we're getting we're getting some very cheaply made shots, and a lot mm -hmm. of this I think comes from the deep laziness yeah. that has crept into filmmaking because of the green screen yeah totally and this is this is really peter jackson's fault because he was the first one not that green screens didn't exist before but jackson's trilogy first trilogy was the first time that we were ever able to like basically just film film the majority of a film just in front of a green screen uh and it be a huge you know successful hit and um are you talking about the hobbit movies or are you talking about the original trilogy the original i mean the originals weren't totally in front of a green screen the hobbit movies basically were yeah but he used a lot of practical effects that was he was he very did to, he to did that. but there was also like um i i remember at the time and you can also see this if you go back and watch like the special features and yeah. stuff at the yeah. end mm -hmm. of the blu-rays uh, they make a really big deal about uh the the green screen use which was really cutting edge at the time yeah um okay and, well, uh, honestly, if you want to blame uh, green screen uses, you have to blame George Lucas, if you're honest, because that's because the prequels were were oh, entirely 100%. digital. They were entirely digital. That was where it started. So he he's it's his fault. So yeah, and I, I even saw um, a very interesting piece. I didn't actually watch the new Thor: Love and Thunder movie yet. Me neither. I probably won't. No. But um, uh, but Christian Bale, who I rather like, I love him. You know, as you know, just like an amazing. Maybe I'll just watch his scenes, like. I'm sure YouTube will have like a cut of only gore oh, yeah. scenes, you know? Yeah, I'm, but I mean, like, obviously, Bale is a great actor. I, it's like water is wet. Christian Bale's a great actor. Yeah, um, pretty much. Um, <laughs> actually, just like little trivia for everyone out there. The first Christian Bale movie I ever saw uh -huh. was a, a, a remake of Treasure Island in which he was Jack, like the, the young boy. No way. So he, he's a little kid. And huh. uh, Long John Silver is played by Charlton Heston. No way. In an, in an, a totally amazing performance. So if you ever need like Christian Bale, it's like a Charlton, TV movie. I don't think so. I think it was made for Disney or something. I I, rem I remember it had like oh, it's one it's one of those. Okay, so they had this Disney had yeah. this period where they were remaking everything for for VHS. I remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it was it's a great. Well, first of all, it's a great movie, and secondly, um, I I do remember as a child, like it had a sort of a shocking. What to me at the time was a shocking amount of profanity because Long John Silver constantly says "damn your eyes," uh, <laughs> which is which is in the book. Um, yes. um, and uh, I was like a little concerned about it, and I asked my mom. She's like, "Well, that's just that's how pirates talk." And I was like, "Oh, okay." I said, but <laughs> don't you talk that language. way? Okay, I won't. Yeah, <laughs> that's pirate, pirate speak. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, okay. Okay. But, since so, we're on trivia, but, since so we're on Christian, trivia, hold on, hold on. Since okay. We're on trivia, yes, please. What was Christian Bale's first movie? Um. Was it Henry V? It was. Yes, indeed. Henry, Kenneth, uh, Brown yeah, Kenneth Brown Henry is Henry V. Yes, that, is, that is probably my favorite movie. I of all it, time? <laughs> yeah, probably of all time. I that, watch it I'm every, sorry, but his his speech, his St. Crispin's Day speech is incredible. It is incredible. I just, you know, on the day, on on, on that day, on St. Christ, Crispin's yes. Day, I just, I just watched that 
scene. So over every and year over in my house, <laughs> every year in my house uh, uh, on St. Christmas Day, we have a viewing party. We watch Henry V. Yeah. And we make cobbler uh, because uh, St. Crispin was a cobbler. And oh, awesome. um, it's just a dumb <laughs> pun, but it's a good excuse to eat. I dessert. love it. It's fantastic. And, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, so, so it's a big thing in my house. All my kids like have a speech memorized. It's, you know, not because I made them memorize it, just because they, they've, they've seen, seen it so, so many, many times. times. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so anyway, uh, I, I love that movie. I love that movie. Um, yeah. So uh, my How brain did is we not get focusing. Here? Christian I Bale. once saw. I just have to say, I once <laughs> saw Michael York uh, portray Falstaff in huh. in li- like live, and I can it see was, that. Oh, so I, great! I can anyway, totally see that. Yeah. So Christian Bale ha- came out in an interview talking about how much he hated working on The Dark World, and what he said was like that the green screen work was just the most boring mm-hmm. thing that he's ever yep. done, and he never wants to basically never wants to do anything like that again. Um, and there's something about there's something about it that I think has really, uh, let's say, enervated, really sapped yeah. the life out of a lot of our fantasy and sci-fi uh, uh, productions. I mean, I will take hokey cardboard sets from like Star Trek Deep Space yeah. Nine. I'll yeah. take that over el- elaborate CGI any day of the week because I'll like t- those I'll take actors, lizard, lizard men from the original series over a hundred percent, like because the actors on those old sets they know the sets are not great and so they are just acting mm-hmm. like their hearts out trying to mm-hmm. sell this thing <laughs> That's right. as opposed to as opposed to hey well let's just we'll fix it in post let's let the cgi sell it um yeah so yeah. all that to say uh the numenorians who i thought looked amazing when they disembarked for, or, or when they embarked from numenor mm-hmm. looked really bland like yeah. really really yeah. really well and and it really didn't happened. help it really didn't help that well they weren't helped by the cinematography in a different way and it's clear that that a lot of the filmmaking the cinematography and the dialogue in this series is trying to take advantage of the easter egg thing thinking that mm. if we recall visually and vocally uh certain aspects of peter jackson's trilogy then people will automatically perk up and not merely forgive us our sins, but will that that is enough that that is, you know, in lieu of of actual good filmmaking, good storytelling, let's just pile on a bunch of, of Easter eggs. And it's especially egregious when it doesn't work. Right. So for me personally, the, uh, I I wasn't happy about Helm's deep becoming the centerpiece of, of the two towers because it's a, it's a throwaway chapter really. I mean, there's, there's not much that happens there. So to make it into a 45 minute long battle, um, in in the two towers movie was to me personally a little bit annoying and they they really kind of they expanded and drew out the drama in such a way that that it was it was annoying there was too much going on that being said the uh rescue um of course it was amor and that was lame it shouldn't have been amor but anyway um the the rescue of uh, led by gandalf the white from the top of the hill as they're charging down with the most incredible music you have ever heard. I mean, that and is the most in, I mean, the most cinema cinematic cinematography. I mean, it looks like a painting by, by Alan Lee or John Howe. It really, it really does. I mean, if you're going to use green screen, at least do it like that. It's yep. one of my favorite scenes in the, in the trilogy. It really is. It's, I mean, I, I weep just every time I see it, it doesn't matter. It's just so well done. And clearly they were trying to evoke this and working on, you know, hoping that, that the memory of it is going to cause the same effect. They totally mess it up because they don't, there's no, so the way that the reason that in a storytelling sense, the reason that the Helm's Deep 
uh, rescue works is because Gandalf leaves at the beginning of the battle, before the battle. Right. Okay, right. so we know that this is what we're waiting for. And the longer his absence stretches out, the more tension is created by the by uh, by the by the movie. And if it goes on forty five minutes, the tension is quite significant. So when he comes, it is a fulfillment of a promise given at the beginning of of the scene of of the right. of the series of scenes of the you know of of the storyline. Right. So it's and immensely tension, rewarding. And that yeah. tension works no matter how many times you've seen the movie. Of course. Yeah, which is because which it's is good storytelling, <laughs> right? That's the sign of good storytelling, and that's also that's a truly medieval way of creating tension. Mm, a poem yes. like Beowulf don't create tension by making you wonder what's going to happen next. Yes. You already know yes. what's going to happen yes. next. The tension yes. comes from okay, are we at the good part yet? Yes, when's exactly. the good part coming? Exactly, right? which is actually what people really want. We don't we don't like 100%. the we don't like. I mean, no matter what Hollywood thinks, we really don't like the stretching out of of the uncertainty forever it's just annoying yeah. and most of the time especially nowadays what people will do they'll, they'll just go to the end to find out what it is and then go back and they'll enjoy it more yeah. because they know the answer and now they can see how it's how it's all uncovered yeah. so in fact like in a lot of the mis kind of mis mystery or puzzle box movies the second viewing is oftentimes a lot more rewarding because you know what's happening and now you can see how it unfolds that's right. that's why i get the christie's novels work so well because you because you're you most of the time, you can guess who the who the bad guy is, and you're trying to figure it free figure out as you go because she gives you all the all the, you all the um, information you need. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. with a few red herrings thrown in, just you know for good measure. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. So it really doesn't work here because first of all, the the idea that this expedition from Numenor is going to magically arrive exactly at this tiny little village in the south is so it's strange the it strains the imagination even for those of us who know we're watching fantasy and we expect a certain uh what what do we say uh, uh what's what's the term that we use when we when we uh suspension, suspension of disbelief, disbelief. Yeah. yeah oh dear my camera died oh no yeah my, the, my camera's like stop talking you're being ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> turned off um yeah so I mean that in itself is really silly, and that that raises a different question, which we'll talk about later, which is something that I have a problem with, which is the problem of scale. But that's in the problem section. We're going to leave it to the end. So to yeah, suddenly intersperse. Yeah, good. I'm glad. So it's yeah. weirdly intersperse scenes of horsemen riding towards something in the middle of a battle in episode six does nothing. It does absolutely nothing other than to say, "Look, we're doing Helm's Deep. Look, 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 we're doing Helm's Deep." It doesn't and work. It would have been very, very little work to try to set up that tension like like if if we had been given a scene where gladriel and the numenorians land and mm -hmm. they receive word mm -hmm. of you know and and like uh Arondir and the and bronwyn like they sent somebody off for help and yes they it's like, not that hard exactly a scout right. yes like yeah i mean we found out at the end of episode seven that uh that Pelargir is a populated, still a populated Numenorean settlement. <laughs> yes, yes. Which, uh, okay, so I guess that means that the Numenoreans have been to Middle Earth before, which is nice to know. We haven't had any indications of that otherwise. No, before. and it, and it kind of messes it all up, really. Just the mention of Pelargir really messed the whole thing up because I thought that before they mentioned Pelargir, it was kind of like, okay, I can see how this whole weird storyline that doesn't fit into anything might work. That's kind of it's kind of like. Uh, a foray into Middle Earth before the great invasion of of the fallen right. Numenorians, right? right? Because they haven't fallen yet, right? So this could be a kind of like advanced party. I could possibly get on board with that, but the mention of Pelagra ruined that because they've been there already, right? And um, but also, 
Pelargir is where they would have had to land to get to Mordor. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, I mean, it's like that or Umbar, right? Yep. And so yep. my question is like, where did you land your ships? I mean, again, this is, yeah. but, but, but all they would have had to do to make kind of all this fit is, is for uh, a Ron Deere to say there is a settlement of Numenorians at Pelargir. Yep. They're the only people nearby. We've got to send someone for help. And Bronwyn says, they'll never come help us. We sided with Morgoth and Arondir says, it's our only shot. And they send somebody They could send Theo. Theo's like, I'll go. Right. And so, Theo runs off to Pelargir, gets there just as the Numenorean ships are arriving. Brilliant. I love meets, it. Why aren't you writing this? Gladriel <laughs> and Gladriel says, okay, show me the way, you know, because yes. that's she's, take me to your mom. Right. She always <laughs> wants to be taken to whoever's in charge. So you can just yes. be like, take me to your mom. See, and Richard, they, you're even willing to work within the confines of this absurd <laughs> right, like, show. Like, just give it, them a million, give taken, them a billion dollars, everybody. Come on. <laughs> it it would have taken very little work to set that up um and and would have made the thing whole thing more compelling because then it's like oh okay the 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 gladriel and the numenorians know that they're on a timetable right they're not just showing up randomly they know that they're on a timetable they have to get there it would have established polar gear as as an important like site of a previous numenorian interaction on the continent um like that could have done a whole lot of work which would have helped with the logistics of this whole thing and We'll talk more about that in a little bit because yeah. there are a lot of problems with the logistics. But um Yeah, really weird problems. Yeah, weird problems. But anyway, so so yeah, so they have this scene of 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 the Numenorians, of the hundreds of Numenorians, which apparently fit on the sm- sm- uh, four small vessels. Um uh they, <laughs> <Yes>. they, <laughs> they have the Numenorians uh riding to aid. And one of the amazing things is that they seem between several shots to keep they keep forgetting what time of day it's supposed to be yes. during the battle. They keep forgetting where different people are supposed to be located on the battlefield. Um, the battle has a very gr- had a very grindy pace to it, and so yeah, I mean, the orc with the blood spurting out of his eye was super gross, gross and unnecessary. Yeah, but the worst thing about the battle to me was that they 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 only basically there was only one. So a good battle scene should tell a story, yeah. and um, you know so. I'm not a fan of pointless violence for the sake of violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if if the battle, you know, if the battle is gory, but it's telling like a, a specific story, then I'm not bothered by it. You know, I mm-hmm. I just you know like because we're we're driving towards a certain you know certain point. Yeah. The this battle, the only story that this battle was capable of telling was a basic trope where you have a character fighting, uh, fights his way through a bunch of mooks, and then he gets mm-hmm. to a boss and he gets beat up by the boss and he's about to get killed by the boss. And then somebody stabs the boss from behind his girlfriend, his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Well, but then they do this, they do this with other characters. And so that it's basically like the whole battle is just a series of last minute saves mm-hmm. where, you know, yes, like it's true. where, where somebody <laughs> like where, and, and that's just, that's the entire progression of the battle. And it so it feels really grindy. It feels really repetitive. And there's no actual sense of danger. I do not actually feel like, oh, a Rondier might get it here. Why? Because yeah. I know that his girlfriend is going to stab the orc in the back or yep. hit him with a frying pan or whatever the heck. I mean, it's so obvious. You're just wait, you're waiting for it. And they keep panning to back and right. forth between his face and the boss's face and his face. And they're like, oh, is it going right. to be this scene? Oh, no, no. Here it comes. Oh, no. Oh, no. Wait. No, here it comes. No, wait. Oh, there it is. Woohoo. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so, so, I mean, so this is the, this is the frustrating thing um, is because it, um, 
not that that kind of suspense is a good again a, a goal that we're going for anyway but when that's all you have and then you don't even give us that um a better way to build suspense about a battle is to well i mean i think the helm's deep battle in the two towers is actually a pretty good pretty good uh, example of building suspense you know the we have some ups we have some downs and then oh, no, finally, it, was, it was a well-designed battle yeah. i agree and then yeah. finally you know we're like we're in the in the inner keep and we're mm -hmm. everything is hopeless and theoden is like all right guys one last ride and Aragorn's what can like, we do against such reckless right. hate yes you can ride forth and uh yeah and what a great scene that Gimli great blows scene. the freaking horn of, of oh, helm hammerhand what a, love it i mean yes. <laughs> like so there are and and the thing is you were like okay even if these guys die or if they live doesn't matter this is awesome right mm -hmm. that's what you um but especially on a big screen i mean them writing down yeah. does that really it's a really long shot and it's right. very wide and they're writing down uh you know the the incline and the orcs are just flying back and forth and they stay there and it's like a single long shot which you never have in modern cinema ever right and they just linger and linger and linger and it just pulls you right in it's so good it's so but good. <laughs> so and this you know what do we get we basically we get gladriel dodging arrows in full plate armor on the back of a horse which okay while I'll doing circus that. numbers i'll accept that elves can do that but basically they, they were like we have this one cool stunt let's mm -hmm. do it a bunch of times mm -hmm. um and really other than that i mean there's there's i mean the 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 numenorians writing in and attacking like where they're just coming in at first they show them i mean this is another continuity error right because they show the numenorians like right of the rohirrim like a big mm -hmm. long bout and then when they actually get to the when they actually get to the uh the the village they have somehow formed into two columns Mm -hmm. and they're like just coming in and uh, yeah so it's a bunch of like uh, you know between the between the sort of the bad cgi copy and pasting the screen printed armor the the basic continuity errors in the battle and just kind of the the grindy and pointless feel of the battle yeah. like the battle scene really uh failed for me yeah no it right? wasn't it and wasn't it didn't good. have to good. like like you Numenoreans fighting orcs that should be an easy sell like oh for yeah any to any Tolkien fan like <laughs> oh, yeah. who doesn't want to see that but it's almost it's, I don't know it's all I mean it's not, we'll get into this later but it's almost like they don't want you to spend too much time glorying in the vision of Numenoreans killing orcs because apparently orcs have the secret fire but we'll get there I don't want to talk about that yet because I still want to say a few positive things and go for it since, since we're in since we're in what will eventually become Mordor. Um, I thought that it was an inspired choice by the writers to reference the best scene in Lord of the Rings. So when they're when the family is preparing for battle, Theo comes up to, to his mom and he there's this absolutely inane conversation that they have. Do you remember when I used to have bad dreams? She goes, Yes, I remember. Remember you used to tell me? Yes, I will tell you now what I used to tell you. I mean it's like Come on, man. Like my five, my eight-year-old can write better dialogue than that. But that being said, <clears throat> she references the scene in Mordor when Sam and, and Frodo are at the end of their tether yep. and they they yep. you know they look up and there's the star, right? And one of the absolutely greatest scenes of all time. So on the one hand, you might look at it as a kind of bastardization and, and misuse of the greatest scene in Lord of the Rings. On the other hand, I thought that they they actually managed to do it fairly well. Um it didn't it's, feel it didn't feel forced to me it didn't feel false i thought that in that place 
considering that this is a very tragic story that the Southlands are about to be overrun. And yeah, I'm not crazy about, about them as characters. I know that the battle was garbage, but in that moment I was like, okay, I can get, I can get aboard on board with this. This is actually not bad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, you're right. It was a nice scene. I think that, I think that the bad dialogue kind of put me off, but yeah. it was a nice antidote to the, you have to touch the darkness. Yes, for sure. You, and it's, you know, it's actually like, kind of nice that, that it's in that setting, in the setting of mortar that we get the right, the right attitude towards the shadow, which is right. interesting. I mean, we'll talk about Galadriel again. We keep talking about Galadriel, but there's something I want to say about her a little bit later, but there's also one, one more thing. And this is connected with uh, the shadow is but a passing thing, which is the, um, the, the quote specifically that, that they echo from Lord of the Rings. But I do like that Galadriel is, seems to be growing very slowly, very slowly uh, in her, especially in the way she expresses the language that she uses to express providence, because it, it goes from let's touch the darkness to that scene in the prison where she won't say it, right? She won't say that there is such a thing as providence as, as the gods, she just suggests it in this kind of annoying way to Halbrand, right? She, she, it's almost like the writers are like, yeah, we're talking about God, but we don't want you all to be offended by God talk. But actually it works for her character arc because clearly she's, she could become the villain of this piece. So when she, within the scene with Theo, in the clearest way expresses that this could all be part of the design, right? Of, of those who are, you know, singing, the, the the movement of the spheres, so to speak, uh, and Theo's very you know realistic response. You know, I don't see the design in her. I mean, completely humble answer of I haven't figured it out yet. I I actually thought that was, in terms of her character arc. Okay, this isn't Galadriel. Let's just pretend that this is some sort of other character that that accidentally got got named the same name as the wonderful character that we know from Tolkien. But you know, can we call her that Saladri- Sad <laughs> Sadriel or Sadri- like? <laughs> Demandriel. <laughs> Demandriel. <laughs> I like that. All right. In Demandriel's character arc, this this moment felt authentic. It felt real. And I liked that they committed enough to actually suggest that there is a design and it's okay that you don't know it. And this yeah. this doesn't mean that you know God is wrong. It just means you haven't figured it out yet. So I actually appreciated that scene. Yeah, I mean, I think that I th- I think her conversation with Theo was the best thing about episode seven, yeah. um, because it showed like a turn coming for her character, um, a slight after- dip into humility where she actually yeah. asked forgiveness for half a second, and you could almost say it sort of came after a um, a baptism of fire, right? <laughs> well, let's talk about the baptism of fire a little bit later, and and the yeah. the wonderful physics that exist in middle earth (laughs) yes um but so the thing that the thing that i thought was really interesting is that uh is the the nice symmetry they gave of when she goes to talk with muriel which who is blind now yeah weird i don't i don't feel anything as far as that goes like i'm I'm like okay it's not a reference to something are we supposed to feel like there's a lot of loss here i don't i don't understand i don't really feel like uh I don't really feel like a, a deep investment in that particular character. So, no, but it maybe seem to just... have any symbolic. Um, well, that, yeah, that's the, that's the thing. Like it, it doesn't seem to have any kind of like symbolic resonance. Um, except that you know, you know, if I wanted to be really generous, I'd say her father is Tar Palantir, the far seer, and so maybe this okay. is Muriel, the 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 not seer. <laughs> that's all I got. Um, yeah, 
but but maybe they'll do something with that. Maybe she'll like start using the Palantir to 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 see things, but she only yeah sees, maybe I, who, who who the heck knows. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, but when she goes to her, she bows. Uh, and remember that Gladriel didn't want to bow initially. That's right. right? Yeah. Um, Halbrand had to make her bow, and now she bows sort of willingly. And so there yeah. is there is like some humility, which is like the nicest thing about her character so far, but also kind of out of keeping for who Galadriel should be by now, right? That she oh, is clearly yeah. like, like the, the, again, just to reiterate the actual complex character, uh, Galadriel character you want to tell is she's proud, which is part mm-hmm. of why she doesn't go back to Valinor when, when yep. she has the opportunity, she wants to stay and have a realm of her own. Right. And, um, they they somehow managed to not give us that version of Galadriel, like like there there could have been a there you know and I've said this before but there could have been a way to write her as a really complicated and flawed character and still be mm-hmm. true to basically what Tolkien envisioned for second you know uh, what he envisioned second age Galadriel to be but right anyway um, but but all that to say I thought that was a nice kind of callback to that moment I thought it was a nice little bit of symmetry in the character yeah. and I know yes. we're winding towards the finale um yeah we'll talk about the finale and what we think will happen later but yeah yeah, uh, yeah. the final the final thing that i want to talk about is actually is the final positive thing i want to talk about before we go into the more interesting stuff let's be honest people you're here not to hear us come up with um faint praise but (laughs) to rant um is i actually personally i like showing adar as the corrupted proto-orc uh, corrupted elf proto orc. I think that's a cool idea. Uh, we know that that's a that's a possibility in Tolkien's vision of who the orcs are. Sure. To actually see that, of course, you do need to allow for the compression of time, and it's a little bit silly in terms of actual practical necessity of how the corrupted elf could suddenly give birth to an entire army of completely twisted beings. That's silly, of course, but we're dealing with. A timeline that needs to be compressed so let's just give them better the benefit of that there's doubt. there's a basically there's not a basically this is a two age middle earth that we're getting yes there was first age and now we're in the third age yeah um you know like we're because we're in like the last five years of the second age at this point so yeah. effectively there was not a second age right or they're, or they're trying yeah. to tell the second age in the span of not an age but half a decade like you right. said. Yeah. Um, so that's that just makes it more difficult to make these these yeah. decisions um realistic. And pretty much all many of the problems that we're going to be talking about today are problems of time compression. So considering the fact that they have so many hours to tell the story, I still don't understand why they're why they're spending so many hours uh having the same scene in in Harfootland over and over and over again, where the entire thing could have just been uh, compressed into a single episode and instead allow i mean I, I hate to do this i really hate to do this but and i, and I have i've been watching uh the house of dragon with my glasses off and i have very terrible vision so i'm i'm watching it only because i i need to have not that i need to but i feel like i need to be on top of uh, cultural trends because this is what we do here in fantasy for our time but i really have to take my glasses off because i mean the sex is getting out of control um so I did. And still, even with this, I'm not even watching most of it. I'm just kind of skipping around. They have time jumps like crazy in this show and it works. They, they, can, they can expand time in a single, in a single season in a way that, that, that continues the dramatic tension given in the first few episodes. 
that would be so easy to do in a series where you're covering a huge span of time. You just have to you have to be brave enough to commit right to allow the audience to 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 uh, to just be brave enough to think that okay the audience is going to stay with us long enough to understand that these creative tensions can last hundreds of years which is a central tenet to what Tolkien talks about anyway i mean these things are universal themes they they keep persisting over generations over centuries that's the point of the silmarillion I mean, we have thousands of years right. that passed and we keep making the same mistakes that's the point you don't need to compress everything you can let it happen so i mean okay slight small rant over there'll be more later stay tuned but that being said setting that aside i like that that they committed to adar being the corrupted elf as the prototype for the orcs just the idea i think it's a good idea what about you i mean i think it's a very cool character concept uh yeah i yeah i i feel basically the same way i've never had an issue um, and again, there's, I mean, there's been a lot of mud slung in the media recently against purists. Yeah. Right. Uh, by which they mean people like me, uh, yes. who, you know, like, like have strong feelings about the way that, uh, you know, uh, about the goodness of the story that Tolkien told yes. and, uh, the dangers of kind of meddling with that. But, mm-hmm. but just, just again, I've, I've been on record multiple times and saying my idea of a faithful adaptation is not you don't add a single thing right yeah yep. um you you look at the story that that somebody told in this case you look at the story that tolkien told and then you see where are the gaps that i can write my story into right and there's this is a fine and totally plausible gap uh, just a, a, for like a little bit of a lore explanation for people who don't know this is one of several versions of the 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 origins of the orcs that tolkien never um uh Never committed finalized, to, committed never to. committed okay, to. So never, you, yeah, Richard, you talked about this in an Amansul episode uh, a while back, and I really liked that episode. Yeah. but I don't, I don't think everybody has heard it. So yeah. I want you to go deep on what Tolkien thought about orcs yeah. and what the possible versions of that might be. Right. So Tolkien, um, Tolkien had a few different ideas. I mean, in in one sense, Tolkien is uh, was was always bound by a very sort of Augustinian commitment. Mm-hmm. That evil can't create anything on its own. Yeah. So then that leads uh like to a difficult question of okay, well, where do orcs as sort of sentient or maybe semi-sentient beings of like <clears throat> hatred and malice, where do they come from? Mm-hmm. And uh Tolkien. And why are there with, so many of them and why do they keep reproducing? Right. So Tolkien originally worked off of the theory that um that they were sort of created from the stone. And then they were filled with uh, filled with evil spirits. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, you could say like fallen Maiar, right? So mm-hmm. that the like original orc commanders would be like would have been these like these powerful elemental spirits. And then of course they become more and more inbred and sort of debased as time goes on. Which is a really cool idea. Um, which is a cool idea. Um, that's actually uh, uh, that's actually the origin of dwarves originally. By the way, in the Book of Lost Tales, huh. dwarves were M- Morgoths, or at the time Melko, who was called Morgoth, yeah. uh, were Melko's first attempts to first attempt to create servants. Mm-hmm. But the dwarves were like too; uh, they were resistant. They were they were too stubborn, and so he had a had to sort of scrap that project. And the dwarves just go <laughs> off on their own and become their own thing. Yeah. And that is actually still the version of the origin of the dwarves that Tolkien is has in his mind when he starts writing the hobbit yeah. and it's over the course of the hobbit that dwarves become the good guys that's right um, yeah because initially they're they're not trustworthy yeah, yeah. at the beginning of the book it says dwarves are not heroes right but by the by the time you get to the end 
Thorin is like, and his nephews, they're like going out, they're fighting, you know, mm-hmm. heroic last stand. They're yep. clearly heroes, right? Yep. Um, but, and, and so like, but you can sort of see like Tolkien kind of falls in love with the dwarves more as, as, uh, as he, as he goes on. So anyway, yep. <laughs> uh, and then he, and then he goes back and, and like comes up with the whole Aule backstory for the dwarves right. and for the Ents. Um, right. Yeah. Which is, which is great, but it's also mm-hmm. uh, just a reminder that Tolkien was so good at retconning things that people sometimes don't realize when a retcon is happening. Yeah, um, so true. that was the first origin for orcs that he worked up. And then later on, he, um, he, uh, at one stage, he had this, this idea that the elves were, that the orcs were twisted elves, like Moraquendi, who'd been captured very, very early on by uh, Melkor's servants and, and then Mm -hmm. twisted and corrupted in some way. Right. Um, Tolkien didn't stick with that idea, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that, um, it doesn't really, uh, elves have a, have a sort of famously low reproduction rate. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. and, uh, it and wouldn't account for the vast numbers of wouldn't account for the vast numbers. Yeah. But the other the other issue was, of course, that as anybody who's actually read the Silmarillion or you know any of the other really like the the kind of like the deeper lore knows, elves don't die die. Mm-hmm. Like if an elf gets killed in battle, they go to the halls of Mandos. They, they do come back. They do a stay in Mandos, depending on how much they sucked or didn't suck <laughs> and then and then after that stays over so it's like a little purgatory kind of mm-hmm. a thing and then after that stays over they're released and they get a new body yep. and they they go back into the world in this case you know valinor but mm-hmm. uh but they go back into the world so elves are always reincarnated yep um which is part of why their birth rate is so low um yep. and by the way thin rod Felagon, we are told alone of all the noldor who perished in middle earth mm-hmm. had no weight in the halls of mandos because he was so noble because he, he flew gave his right life out sacrificially to for baron <laughs> he flew right out so if galadriel really wanted to see her brother she should have stayed on that boat because he would have been <laughs> like waiting on the shore been like what's up sister been, oh, i've been man. waiting it waiting for you but anyway yeah. um so 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 then this sort of raises a problem if orcs are corrupted elves mm-hmm. then like do do they also endlessly reincarnate are they healed when yeah. they go to the halls of mandos right. do they you know when they f- sort of finish their 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 time of waiting are they healed and you know yeah it, it just it raises all kinds of kind of weird difficult questions mm-hmm. so tolkien uh lays that aside and works on a couple of other ideas um his latest idea the one that he's working on at the time of his death is that orcs are um they are they're men that they're mm-hmm. twisted twisted humans um, and again, this raises all kinds of difficult questions that Tolkien wrote about, like, cause he was very troubled by the idea that, well, if an orc can be saved, are yeah. you right in killing it? Right. Yeah. And so, um, uh, so one, one of the, one of the, the, the versions that he works on, and this is what he's working on towards the time of his death is this idea that, that orcs are a sort of unclean hybrid of, 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 men who followed Morgoth and then these bestial forms that had been entered by these demonic spirits. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so basically you get kind of like, uh, you know, if people are Lord of Spirits listeners, basically kind of like these Nephilim hybrid monstrous, you know, half, half human, half demon kind of a a thing. The the point is that uh, Tolkien knew that Tolkien knew that by making them either elves or men um, that he was creating some like ontological or soteriological problems for himself. 
and he was he was aware of that, but he never finishes working it out. So he doesn't so that, he doesn't figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. And so when when uh, when Christopher Tolkien and Guy Gabriel Kay are putting the Silmarillion, the published Silmarillion together, they go with the elf origin, which is mm-hmm. one of two mistakes. Um, oh, or two, two or th- two or three mistakes that Christopher Tolkien said that he made later on that oh, he okay. should not know he that. shouldn't he, he said he he said himself he shouldn't have gone with that version but what um, would he have chosen did he say what, what he would have chosen instead I don't remember if he said what what he thought he should have chosen or not but but basically like if you want all the different versions you can look at the history of Middle Earth because um, they're all in there um yeah. okay <laughs> I, I personally think yeah I, I personally think the um um, I do like the idea of them sort of being like demonic hybrids. I also like the sort of made from stone and then, or, or wild, or, you know, these wild beasts and then mm-hmm. filled with these demonic spirits, which is basically the origin of dragons. It's basically the origin of like the werewolves, the vampires, all the other like monstrous things. So why yeah. not orcs? I think, I feel like that's yeah. a nice sort of Occam's razor answer to the question. But it also, it also addresses the problem of, of their whole scale wholesale um extermination which is which seems to be the only answer possible in lord of the rings to what you can right. do to orcs right and and there are you know famously there was somebody who wrote an unofficial sequel to the lord of the rings um from the perspective of the orcs and was like oh, that, actually that is, that is that the russian one yes yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, so sort of famously, a lot of people have kind of had a problem with the whole scale extermination of the orcs. But the thing, the thing that people need to understand is that fantasy stories need demons to defeat. Yeah. Um, and if you don't have a de- if you don't have demons, if you don't have like the white walkers are going to come over the wall, mm-hmm. or if you don't have the, um, uh, the, the cauldron board in the, in the Pridane Chronicles. Which is what I'm reading to my son right now. And um, I'm realizing I'm so, um, it's really affected me as a writer, but that's a different conversation. Uh, oh, interesting. I'm very <laughs> oh, curious yeah. about that. Um, I love those books very much. They're fantastic. Um, um, but, but like you need, you need something that it's okay. Uh, somebody expressed this to me um, in terms of uh, role-playing games once. Um, like mm-hmm. you always have to have zombies doesn't mean your zombies need to be called zombies but you need to have something that this is an existential threat Mm -hmm. it's going to destroy you it's going to destroy everything you care about it has to be killed and you always need that in a fantasy story this is the thing that makes game of thrones effective it's not the squabbling so whatever people say about it being realistic and historically based and wars wars of the roses kinds of stuff it's the reason it works is because there is the existential threat of winter coming that's right winter is winter is coming, like, coming. The, the rest of it it's you could find it anywhere else you can find it in the tutors you can find a bunch of us it doesn't set it apart from anything else right. but having that existential threat is really what r- makes it rise above for sure yeah you've got to you've got to have some kind of an existential threat that is so totally destructive to order to civilization to anything that you care about that and also is, inscrutable not just destructive yeah, but you don't right. need to understand it Right. You shouldn't because it can't be understood. And any attempts to do so result in your being overtaken by it. That's a very important point. You, 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 nobody in, in Game of Thrones, in spite of it being the most modern or postmodern of fantasy series, nobody, nobody tries to reason with the, with the White Walkers. Nobody. Because they know it's pointless. Right. So even right. in that world, which is you know post-Nihilist version of uh, 15th, 14th, 15th century England, even they know you don't do it. So that begs the question, Richard, why are these story these showrunners so invested in giving the orcs a culture and a religion and an identity why 
So, and, and just to be clear, I think that the showrunners, just like Jackson, like you could say we have multiple versions of the origin of orcs and one of them rightly or wrongly made its way into the published Silmarillion. Yeah. Peter Jackson went with it. The showrunners are going with it. I think they're well within bounds to do that. I don't have a problem with that. Agreed. But, but. The deeply sympathetic take yeah. that we're given of the orcs within the same uh within the same frame of a deeply pessimistic take on the elves yes all of is them. really really off put it's really disturbing to me because yeah. basically basically what they're doing what they're doing is setting that up is to say the elves are the oppressors Mm-hmm. Right, the elves are the ones who are are oppressing us, and all Adar really wants is a homeland for his people. And that they set sense, and they okay, it doesn't make sense, but they've done such a poor job of making you care about any of the good guys in the show, except for they actually believe it when he says it. That when he says it, I just sort of threw up my hands and I looked at my wife, and she was like, "So why are we fighting the orcs at this point? Like there all of the bad guys suck." They're mm-hmm. awful. They're terrible. The elves are racist and blah 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 blah. Okay, and, and no, notice the thing with the, with the seeds. This is really interesting, right? So Arondir misuses the seeds. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but you're supposed to plant the seeds before battle. He does it. He uses them for medicinal purposes. He he leaves them on his person. The only person this, they, and they keep going on about these seeds. They show up in the first episode. So there's I don't I don't quite understand why, but okay, this is supposed to be a through line. It's supposed to kind of resonate. It doesn't work, but whatever. Adarf plants the seeds before the battle in a land that's going to be scorched. Yeah. What? <laughs> right. I'm sorry. I don't know. Why? Why are you working so hard to make this character so appealing? Right. Because honestly, he's the most fascinating, interesting character in the entire series. He really 100%, is. 100%. 100%. By yeah, far. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and so then we get this scene where he's arguing, I just want a homeland for my children. So he's the mm-hmm. mother right or the, the father. they're, they're calling him father right but yeah. he's 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 like the most maternal character in, in well the he's show. like a devouring mother though isn't he yeah yeah well, maybe a little bit except that except that he i mean he devours not his children but like the other things no but the, the devouring mother so yes the devouring mother devours her own children but what i mean is like the mother who's been bereft of her children becomes the yes yes the yes, yes mother, yeah right? so the, the yeah, mother who goes right. and, and devours everyone else right? right yes because her children have been taken away from her yeah, so Adar is uh, basically is like, listen, I just want a homeland for my children. And then Galadriel says, well, I'm going to keep you alive while, while you watch me commit genocide on all of your children. Yeah. How are you going to like that? And at that point, it's like, okay. She's the villain, period. You're trying to show us that Galadriel is the villain. And I don't think that's accidental. And for no, me- No, it's not. It's it absolutely deeply, on purpose. For me, it hugely undermined my ability to appreciate Galadriel's improvement in episode seven because it, yeah, I felt agreed. like, sorry, that turnaround was a little too fast for me. Mm-hmm. Like if, you know, and the, only, and, and the, and the only reason she has a turnaround then, according to the logic given by Morfit Clark, is that is the sexual tension, right? So at right. that point, you've just lost me. So I'm sorry. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, so yeah, it really undermined for me what was otherwise the most beautiful part of episode seven because. Yeah. Sorry, the turnaround's too fast. I don't, I'm not convinced by it. I, I, 
but also like there was no inciting incident that would cause the turnaround. No, right. You're, you're telling this kid what you think this kid needs to hear. But I mean, it's like the alcoholic who tells us, tells this kid, Hey, don't, don't drink son. Right. And you know, he's going to turn around and go out and get drunk tonight. Right. Well, and I, I, yeah, I mean, I suppose the argument could be made that her surviving a, uh, an attack, a, a being overrun by lava might be enough of a reason for her to rethink her life. But then apparently lava doesn't work like lava in middle earth. It's just kind of red mist. Um, so I don't know. Like, and by the way, the weird uh, color um, symmetry between the, the what was apparently the battle the battle of uh, of um, uh, what, what which which one, what's the what's the elvish name the the unexpected flame dagor dagor brachalak which is what it's supposed to be in, in episode one right um, that's the battle we're supposed to, that seems to be the the implication isn't it. I I I I I had thought it was supposed to be like the end, the final battle at the end of the War of Wrath, but I don't know. Okay, maybe yeah. Um, but anyway, there's that yeah. red, the scene with the with the floating red bodies, and then now yeah, we have yeah, yeah. the red mist. So clearly, there's supposed to be some again, you know, pointless resonance. But um, yeah, because the, because that battle had uh, eagles and dragons fighting, and that only happens in the okay. That only happens yeah, in, I don't the, even in the final that, battle because I don't of even Wrath. care. So yeah, I don't even remember. But yeah. Um, no, I agree, and it's it's a another missed opportunity, and maybe we should talk about now the problem problem of scale because this is we keep we keep approaching this yeah. from different from different yeah. angles. This is another problem of scale. They really this show really has an issue with scale. First of all, they keep insisting on the necessity of there being a time squash right in order to be able to tell the story well, and you can make that argument, and I can accept that argument if you tell the story well, which they haven't been right. able to do yet, especially since, as I've already mentioned, they're stretching time in weird ways in some of the other stories where really we don't need it. I mean, the entire Harford story can be told in half an episode. Uh, stranger arrives, stranger helps, stranger gets makes a mistake, stranger gets uh, you know pushed out, stranger we we go we go get stranger again. I mean, that's like you don't need seven episodes for this, right? right? And then the weird, like the quickness of events that lead to character transformations. That's the problem when you when you compress time. So if you're going to tell a effectively a, a long ranging story of character development, which needs time um, on screen to pass in order for it to be realistic, because all of us are humans and we all know how long it takes for us to get over difficult emotions, uh, then you really have to do the work and try to convince us that this is that this makes sense. But these things, they really happen very quickly. Uh, there isn't enough of an internal motivation for them to happen. And uh, Galadriel, right. in Galadriel's case, that's very clear. So you kind of have to just float on top of on top of the story without going deep, without really thinking about it. You have to turn your brain off and just kind of go, okay, fine, whatever. I'm just going to go with it. And if you do that, you can have an enjoyable experience, sort of, if you don't allow your brain to think too hard. Because as soon as you do, as soon as you allow your heart in, you realize there's a lot of stuff that couldn't possibly happen it doesn't really make sense especially with galadriel so this is the thing that really frustrates me with many of the defenses being made for the show uh which first of all like if somebody just genuinely enjoys the show More power i'm not to you, man. <laughs> yeah like i'm not like fine great whatever i probably like things you don't like so you know it's not a big deal to me but uh but also like you know amazon's a big uh, evil megacorp. They can take care of themselves. Like you don't, like yeah, <laughs> don't need a rally to their defense, guys. Like <laughs> like you know, like 
Yeah. No, you don't. You know, and they're they're not watching this. They don't care what I say. I'm not an important person. They're going to make fine. all five seasons no matter what. This right. is it's just yeah. going to happen. Right. And um but the thing that's frustrated me about the defense that so many people are mounting for the show is they keep saying things like, well, their hands are tied because dot dot dot. Yeah. Okay, but you know, their hands are tied because they don't have access to they only have access to the appendices, which is not really true. No. Nope. Their hands are tied because that. there's too much time that they have to cover. The reason this is a bad argument, and this shouldn't be like a part of our criticism when we're doing, you know, and by criticism, I mean, good or bad, you know, discussion of adaptation is that you can decide before you start what story you're going to make. Yeah, of course. Right. Amazon was totally, is totally capable of saying, okay, we want to tell stories with time jumps, or we want to tell a more limited story, focusing not, not trying to cram the entire second age into, you know, you know, five, five years, but let's do the most important parts of the, you know, or, or something right there. They had options. And at the end of the day, you can kind of, if you're, it's your show, you've got the budget, you can decide that you're going to do what you want to do. So when you look at the decisions that they did make, the things that they have decided are important, yeah. right? By putting it on the screen yeah, and by this you know, is the best coming option. back to these themes over and over again, they're yeah. saying, this is what is important about these stories. These are the best options. And then it's totally fair to look at those and, you know, just critique them. And one of the things that, one of the things that is very clear is that the showrunners don't have a good handle on the importance of time and space as part of the texture of middle earth. Um, So to just give uh, some examples here, Um, the, um, and I I did like, I did, I did some math on this and, Mm -hmm. you know, part of it was, having having run you know a very long tabletop campaign in middle earth i'm just really familiar with distances and how far how long it takes you to get from point a to point b at historical travel speeds because this is a question i've had to answer a lot right (laughs) and so as soon as like they leave and then they leave numenor and then the next thing you know they're galloping across the plains of one assumes like you know gondor or or whatever Mm. like as soon as they start doing that, I, I I started to my 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 Tolkien brain, Tolkien nerd brain, my purist brain, yes, uh, started just saying, well, okay, but how? What what route would they have taken? <laughs> and if you think that this is an, an inconsequential question to Middle Earth, then then you don't understand anything about Tolkien's writing, right? Clearly, because <laughs> because literally there are whole portions of the Fellowship of the Ring where they're just discussing which route should we take, right? So I just yeah. said, well, which route would they have taken? So I got out my uh, my map. I got out my Atlas of Middle Earth, which is a really great resource for this sort of thing, <laughs> and uh, it's really easy to tell that um, uh, uh, Umbar, let's say. Um, which uh, it's either Umbar or Pelargir are the two closest ports that Numenoreans mm-hmm. used in the Second Age. Um, are they're, they're about six, sixteen hundred miles from <laughs> <Lord>. <laughs> uh, sixteen hundred miles from Rome, uh, Romena, which is the which is the main which is the primary haven of of Numenor. So mm-hmm. so just so people know, sixteen hundred miles is the distance from Norway to Greenland, yeah. um, which yeah. is which is a distance that people have actually sailed. Mm-hmm. right famously so yes uh on on boats you mm-hmm. know and so um and you so you can you can figure out exactly how long that would take 
Yeah, uh, it wouldn't take historical tra- 20, 25 minutes. <laughs> yeah, at historical travel speeds, how long would that take? And so just so people know at optimal historical travel speeds, this assumes good winds, mm-hmm. no storms. And, and very no importantly, creatures of the deep, of course. No, no sea monsters attacking. Um, uh, but and and then of course, very importantly, no navigational errors. Mm-hmm. Um, so for people who don't know, there is a five to ten uh in, when you're when you're traveling by sail, there's a five to to, to send five to ten percent of of distance traveled risk of overshooting your target, yeah. uh, left or right, like yeah. north or south. And so, um, depending on which port they were they were headed for, they could have ended up anywhere 160 to 380 miles uh, too far up or down the coast. Mm-hmm. All that said, let's assume that Numenorians are really great mariners. We haven't actually been yeah. shown that they're great mariners. No, we keep, um, we're, we're shown that they're not very good mariners. But we are told that the sea is always right, so there That's is that. True. But let's yeah. assume let's let's give to them some grace here and assume the Numenorians are the greatest mariners who have ever lived. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can assume that they make the trip in the best possible time landing at Pilar gear. And um, let's say they do it in, uh, let's say they do it, you know, at top speeds, at top, top speeds. Let's say they do it in three to four weeks, mm-hmm. which would yeah. be, which would be like unheard of, yeah, you know, optimal sailing conditions the whole way. But let's say they do it in three to four weeks and then, uh, and they make the trip to either Umbar or Pilar gear. And at that point you have to figure out, well, what route would they take? to get mm-hmm. to Mordor, which is where they're headed. Right. Um, we have no idea how they know they need to go to Mordor. And that because particular the show tiny not, little town. Right. Because the show has not told us, presumably there are a bunch of other villages in the Southlands. Otherwise, you're- uh, Are you of, sure? Because like, are, 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 no, there's, sure there's only one village as far as I can yeah, tell. They've done the a, entire they've, Southlands. Yeah, they've done zero work to show us that. But let's assume that there are <laughs> other villages in the Southlands because otherwise you would be the lost king of like 40 people. But um, I think that's what he is. <laughs> Well, yeah. Um, and uh, so so at that point, you could say, well, what route would you take, for instance, from Pilar Gear, which apparently wasn't the port that they used because uh, we were told. Um, yeah, OK, she does have this, the map with the sigil on it. Yeah. But so the, she kind the of sigil is like the yeah. entire region of Mordor, which is millions of square miles. Like that's not a lot. <laughs> and to there's, go. there's a lot of mountains there, too. A lot of mountains there. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so. Uh, so, but let's say that they had landed at Pilargir or Umbar. I mean, there are only so many places they could have landed is the bottom line. And pretty much any of the routes that they would have taken were the routes that the Gondorians later turned into roads because those are the only ways you can really go. Yeah. Um, they couldn't have landed too far up the coast because then they would have had to pass through the White Mountains, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, <laughs> so being really generous about this, let's assume that the Numenorians have amazingly good horses. I mean, hunt, but, but also like... like They can fly. Horses and like Pokeballs because... <laughs> Those were some very small ships they were sailing out on, and we're supposed to believe that actually they had hundreds and hundreds of horses in there so that yes. they could do a full cavalry charge. Well, um, I, I have been informed by Facebook that uh, that I am <clears throat> foolish and um, ignorant for suggesting such a thing. So, yes, you're wrong. Who, what? Yeah, you're wrong. It's possible. Yeah, Facebook said so. <clears throat> yeah, because okay. you know they were because you know there were galleons with with you know multiple levels. You know, back then, big galleons with multiple yes. levels and lots. Of, yeah, <laughs> but but we can only go with what they show us on the screen. And those are not huge galleons with multiple. Which are not huge galleons with multiple They're levels. Small ships. <laughs> I am not saying that a that the Numenorians in the in in Tolkien's Middle Earth that the Numenorians were not capable 
of assembling uh, of of building a really big galleon, 18th century style galleon yeah that that could not be full of actually at one point they were 18th century style galleons with like rockets uh fortunately <laughs> tolkien scrapped that pretty quickly um Man, but but that would have been I cool know, i know <laughs> uh but uh but you know we're I'm not saying that the Numenorians were not capable of such a thing, but the ships that they show us on the screen, which people, they're not real ships, they're CGI. Yes. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? That means you can make them look like whatever the heck you want them that to look like. That means they're actually blue boxes that are right. bigger on the inside. That's what it means. So actually we're in Doctor Who. That's what's going on. But I mean, they they could have made them massive, impressive galleons. You yes. could have shown us a scene under the decks where he's going to comfort his horse, you know, and, and there's like, Oh crap, there's a bunch of horses in here instead of like three horses. Mm-hmm. Like you could have at any point in time, but, the, it's, CGI, but it's very, right? yeah. but yeah. it's very clear that the, the continuity of the logistics, yep. right. Just, just like space and time, that stuff isn't important to, yeah, we don't care. Let's, let's move was, on. Let's move on. It, it was important Yes, to like the Jackson trilogy, right? That's one of the yes, things the sure. Jackson trilogy sure. does well is they make they make it feel like it's a place, right? They make, make it feel like, like it's a big place. Yeah, yeah. The distances so, are vast. So at a bare minimum, let's assume they have magical, really fast horses and don't make any navigational errors trying to find Mordor mm-hmm. and don't have any trouble with guides or translators or any of these other things that <laughs> yes. invading armies always have problems with. Mm-hmm. And they know exactly where to go, which again, we have no reason to believe that they do. Well, they do talk about Osterith, I think before they, before they leave, but still, I mean, that's yeah. You know, yeah. It's like, but, it's like this tiny little pinpoint on the right. Map, but, right. You know. But let's assume they, let's, uh, assuming all of those things, it should take at least a six week trip. And that's mm-hmm. being really generous, at least a six week trip. So at that point, you have to say, okay, so clearly the Numenor storyline and the Southland storyline are, are asynchronous because yes. otherwise there's no way. Uh, and yet the show has done very little work to show Not us the zero, asynchronicity. Zero no, zero um, work. It, we're assuming it's all happening at the same time. We right. have no so at the reason end of episode two, at the end of episode two, we get the moment of synchronization for all the storylines. That's right. Because at the end of episode two, everybody sees the same meteor falling. At That's the same right. Time. Very good point. Yep. So, so you we're can tie back to that and time. say, yep. at one point, all of these storylines are moving at the same speed. Yeah. And then after that point, if you've made if you've made the point to show that to the viewers, mm-hmm. after that point, you have to start doing work. You. you at whatever point the stories aren't supposed to be in sync, yeah, you have to you have to sort of indicate that they're not in sync. But here's the thing: if at the you very have, least, you go two months later. I mean, it's not that hard, right? You know, but it's like, like a it's su- like super title. It's like air moving around a wing because you have at mm. this point we know these two points are touching, yeah, and we know in episode six these two points touch. So yeah. if we're synchronized here, we're synchronized here, and everything has just been shot for shot synchronized this entire time. Yep. There, there's no reason that the that the showrunners have given us to think that at some point the stories were out of sync with each other, and actually a whole bunch more time passed in Numenor than it did in the Southlands. Yeah. Which meant that they managed to get in an, a, a whole armament together, sail to Middle Earth, fought, navigate from Umbar to. Mordor and find this little town, this little village. It's not a, it's not a town. No, a it's, a, it's a few huts. <laughs> and they managed to do all of that in the course of like a week or two. Yeah, it's um, not to mention not to mention Gladriel had across the the centering seas once already, and That's then right, yeah. swim halfway back. And and all of that <laughs> happened 
within like a couple of weeks. And so, yeah. Um, but I as, mean, as we know, with the, with the turning on of, of the, um, of Mount doom physics doesn't matter. So let's uh, perhaps we should, we should move to the absolutely brilliant scene of water causing a lava eruption because you now, know, that's see, what happens. I did water see, like, causes some, lava. some geologist or something was explaining that this is some kind of a thing like it's that can set volcano but i i don't know i i mean this is not my area and i didn't really pay a lot of attention to those, yeah so I don't know. flood waters from the surface going underwater can cause a volcano uh-huh bite me sorry <laughs> <laughs> especially the way it was shown it was like a little waterfall and suddenly what happens when water touch when water hits lava it hardens. turns into steam yeah yeah it hardens the lava turns into steam there it yeah. doesn't explode there's no there's no TNT down there. That's some. There's no like. There's no. But e even no if it was valid, reaction that causes that to happen. That's insane. Even if it was like a science thing. Yeah. Even which then, we've talked about already. <laughs> right. Right. Even if it was a science thing. Even then, you have to sort of look at like, okay, so we were doing all the setup with the orcs digging. Mm -hmm. Has been actually to show that hey, they were making hundreds and hundreds of miles of underground trenches from some river i forget which river that would be right now um it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah you're i mean sadly you're right it should matter yeah but it doesn't um uh and yeah it, and and that was supposed to be the payoff for all of that like for the yeah. digger orcs species mm -hmm. the digger orc species never and, mind uh, that they can't be outside in the sun so that has nothing to do with it they they dig because of they dig because it was water. like a yeah, it was a, you know, like a, a, it was a plumbing job. So, yeah. And then, you know, volcano goes, goes off and the, the town gets totally Pompeyed, except it doesn't like, yeah. do you know what happens to towns next to volcanoes when volcanoes go off? Yeah. People don't survive. They no. don't. And we all know this, like, we're not stupid. We right. know this, that people do not survive. It's no stop. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and it's, you know, again, somebody might argue well they were too far away from the volcano but then they didn't even try they matters. didn't try to make any excuse they didn't try to explain it in any way right i mean clearly the final shot of episode six is galadriel's gonna die clearly galadriel steps into the caldera of the volcano and we know that she's not going to die because there's two more episodes in the season but at but least also, try please yeah, give me some at least, stupid you know timey wimey you know i ducked behind a piece of rubble just right at the last moment you <laughs> know kind true. of a thing like <laughs> yeah and so this is the kind of stuff and and you know you can you can legitimately ask the question all right this is a work of fantasy how much are we supposed to expect in the way of realism but if you're doing all this work to make it clear that magic has a system if you're doing right. all this work to put cause and effect if you have that whole stupid idiotic thing about mithril being a battery then why suddenly at the end do physics not matter like you've been making it very clear that we are we are in a world where magic follows clear logic and clear rules rules and, and this suddenly, isn't magic this isn't magic this is just we it's dug just a hole. natural right so i guess magic has has rules but physics doesn't and that's i have questions about why is there a, an evil lightsaber that is also the key to open a dam is that a thing that sauron left that doesn't yes. make any like like who, yes. who put that there and he why? built the whole thing right but it's, but it's like before an, he went like north an, before he got got you know 
was defeated and ran off north because he knew that he would need this at a point. But it's like a, it's like a, it's an elf dam, right? Like, no, no, I I, don't know. Who knows? Doesn't matter. (laughs) Doesn't matter. Like the showrunners. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm trying to rationalize things. I'm trying to give people the benefit of the doubt. But at the end of the day, if you're trying to sell me on this is, this is like a cohesive vision of Middle Earth. No. It's just, and that's that's the thing that's missing. It's missing cohesion, and that's the most frustrating thing about it to me. I, uh, I I remember thinking when it first came out, I was like, well, it could be bad or it could be just like really mediocre, and yeah. I almost hope it's just so bad nobody wants to watch it, right? Because, because this is worse because they they keep tugging at you and they th- they keep yeah. thinking, okay, maybe they're going to get past this initial. Yeah. There's there's a lot of things you can say, and we have been saying we have been making the the uh we've been trying to steel man this the whole time we've been trying to say okay the first few episodes are going to be difficult because you're trying to please everybody because it's a difficult thing to with so much expectation to make everybody happy fine you're going to be you're going to take your lumps with the first few episodes you expect that to happen uh you it happened with wheel of time it happened with with a lot of other shows they're going to get better maybe it doesn't happen okay well maybe there's going to be a payoff in this you know like i you know we're gonna get to predictions in one second, but I honestly think we're not going to get answers to any of the questions that were raised in the season at all. None. Saruman's not going to show up. The strange is not going to be revealed as anybody. Uh, we're going to have a bunch of cliffhangers that are that are not going to be tied to future storylines. They're going to be continuations of the same questions that were asked in episode one, and we're going to have to, you know, stand on the edge of the cliff trying to make ourselves feel. The tension that doesn't exist because we know that it doesn't matter ultimately because they're going to flip the rug of rug out from underneath us anyway and we and i don't know it's just so frustrating because it's not it's not terrible it's not really really awful they keep trying they, they keep they keep trying to do the right thing they have this these great <clears throat> conversations about providence they have these excellent scenes of friendship they have beautiful cinematography they have it's like it's so close and it boy it's not close at all it's so far away so Real quick, I do want to talk about the Mithril thing again. Okay. Um, and the reason I want to talk about this is that there was a theory circulating around the internet that was started by the uh, the Tolkien professor Corey Olson is the one who originally uh, came up with this theory on his show Rings and Realms. Yeah. Um, and on that show, he uh, he basically suggests that that okay, this is clearly not something that fits in Tolkien's Middle Earth, and so what he argues is it doesn't actually work this way and that this is just a lie that Sauron has fed the elves and he's secretly de- deceived Celebrimbor and Celebrimbor has deceived Gilgalad and now Gilgalad is deceiving Elrond and that Mithril doesn't actually have this effect. So what about the, the, this the episode, leaf. What about the leaf? this episode, and I'm not calling out Corey or professor yeah. Olson or anything like that, but I just want to, I just, I do want to come back around to this because this episode deliberately confirms the whole the whole mithril yeah. the origin of mithril yeah the apocryphal story right yeah. and and in two ways one is it shows okay we have the fading of the elves as expressed by the corruption of the tree of the leaves of the great tree of linden mm-hmm. and exposure to mithril heals that yep even though it's so a that dead leaf that feels right that 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 totally validates Celebrimbor's whole theory yeah, about we need all the mithril because it'll stop the fading of the elves. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're if we are meant to believe tree equals elves, which everything in the show like is leads you to believe trees equal elves. Like yes, they're like <laughs> what 
what do what do elves like they like trees we should we should like lean into that a lot right and so <laughs> yes. I'm, and i'm fine with it i'm fine with it i'm i'm here for the dental the 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 dentological ontology uh, mm. or whatever Ooh, I like, like that. I'm, I'm here for it but if we're to believe that's the case, as we are based on the the conventions the showrunner, showrunners have set up, then it's very clear the Mithril does heal the fading of the elves. Mm -hmm. Durin drops the leaf. The leaf flutters all, all the way down to the bottom of the mine shaft. There's the Balrog, and there at the bottom, as you knew it was going to be in the most po most ham-fisted way possible, they reveal. Yep. Actually, there's a Balrog at the bottom. Surprise, oh, children! No, <laughs> but also like he growls, and and I think that we're supposed to understand that the roaring of the Balrog is actually what's causing the yes the seismic you know shifts yes. and, and 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 whatnot. And so um and so yeah, so surprise, surprise, there's the Balrog, and so and the idea is the Balrog has been waiting down here since he got defeated by the elf, right? And yep, so it's that's that Balrog. The, yes. It's that Balrog, right? And mm -hmm. so I and I and I knew this is where this was going. Um, what I am very I'm I'm just I'm su I'm surprised that they they have the the mithril working in such an obvious way. I don't know why I'm surprised, but uh I mean they I, I don't think I mean they, they really put a lot of effort into making that into a yeah. big reveal. I don't see how even in puzzle box storytelling, I don't see how you could you could go back on that completely i mean right so yeah at this point, point but <laughs> at this point they can't and i do think that um i mean the thing that they're trying to use it for which is during the youngers uh during the fourth's uh motivation to try to uh to save elrond's people yeah. right like that's the catalyst for him to decide all right you know damn the torpedoes we're gonna go ahead and and do what we need to do um so that that's fairly effective within the conceit of the story yes but, but it's within the conceit of the story only because if you consider right. that the problem with the mithril is that they they delved too greedily and too deep you're gonna have to do a lot of work to make Doran the fourth as he will be too greedy right. because everything he's doing so far is is well reasoned yep. So if yep. that's how you're setting up, you're once again undercutting the good, the virtuous impulses of your characters, uh, as you, as you're consistently doing, as these right. writers are consistently doing again and again and again. And it's interesting because I was talking to my wife about the mithril thing and getting her take on it. Um, and my wife is uh, who listens to these, so that's I'll nice. <laughs> be careful what I say, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but 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 my wife, uh, she'd be the first to tell you, like she watches things for different reasons than I do. I watch them mm -hmm. as a writer. She yeah. just watches them as somebody who enjoys stories. Sure. Um, and and because of that, I really like her perspective on things. Mm -hmm. It sort of yeah. helps ground me. Yeah. And sure. one of the yeah. things that she said that was really frustrating about it to her was simply the fact that they they weren't they weren't confident that anybody would like would find delving greedily and deeply as a compelling enough motivation. Yeah. Like they couldn't just let dwarves. The way she said it is they they couldn't just let dwarves be dwarves. Like yeah. dwarves yeah. are greedy. Dwarves want treasure. Right. These That's are right. very basic yeah. dwarf things. Yeah. Um. And they. It's a perfectly could, fine motivation, by the way. It's a perfectly it, it, fine as a writer, I can tell you this. It's fine. <laughs> right. Right. And 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 uh and also like it's quite a relatable motivation. Yeah. Um. You know. And and but they couldn't they couldn't just let the dwarves be like man we found mithril mithril is really awesome let's get it. 
and yeah. and and that be and that be it and then you know elrond and duran's friendship could have played out somehow in the scope of that right it, it wouldn't again, have changed the, the dynamics of their friendship all that much honestly again it, it's, the, there's the, too much complication it doesn't really make right. sense the creators of the show were in no way constrained mm. or hemmed in yeah. in their choices about how they how to portray this whole mithril thing they could yeah. have just gone what was with it uh what was in the legendarium because for them to have changed it means they felt like this was an improvement yeah yeah and, for sure yeah and the result is to kind of replace the the deep rich the replace the deep rich depth of storytelling with this kind of you know what my friend reno called myth light right you know there's the balrog and elf hit a tree at the same time yeah. a bolt of lightning <laughs> strikes it yes. and we're going with that now yeah, yeah no yeah. and the funny thing is that most of the time uh i've taken some screenwriting courses with some rather prominent screenwriters um and i've written some um some uh screenplay treatments myself um and they've actually won awards so for what that's worth nice. but the the point i'm trying to make here is that most of the time the the reasons given for uh, significant changes to to book related um story motivations or or plot points or whatever is the limitation in time of the medium of film you have to fit a bunch of stuff into two and a half hours yeah okay? they have 50 hours there are no limitations here they can do whatever the heck they want they don't need to use the usual excuse that screeners have about we have to compress all of all of this into a single story that convolutedly explains everything while simultaneously complicating very the very simple desires of the main characters that could have just been allowed to play out normally it it doesn't make sense so and i i'm sort of answering a lot of things that pop up on some of these facebook feeds because there are a lot of people are really trying to for some reason come to the defense and again, of like, amazon like, <laughs> i i I'm, I'm so puzzled by the like what is going on there like it's fine if you just like the show yeah. uh if somebody's just like i like the show and I don't really care about your criticisms. I'm like, it's fine, not a yep. big deal. But but like, for people to come to Amazon's uh, defense and start making, here's all the excuses why you know they had to do the things that they did. No, they had a billion dollars. Yes. They could have done anything they wanted to do. This is what they wanted to do. Yeah, clearly. Like, yeah, sure, all actually, creativity happens within boundaries, but the the well, there's not enough boundaries here. Clearly, that's right? Yeah, yeah, that's part of the problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's yeah. actually end the end here. And um, I've given. Do we want to speculate about the finale? Yeah, I've given some of my thoughts. I, I'd like to hear what you think is going to happen. Um, I think that um, I'm going to go more optimistic than you, and uh, <laughs> and uh, think that Halbrand will be revealed to be Sauron in the at the end of episode eight, right. um, or or at least to be part of Sauron, if my mm -hmm. theory is correct. God, I hope um, you're wrong. And then I, 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 I hope I'm wrong too. But I think that what this will lead to in the opening of season two will be about how do we keep Halbron from re-embracing his Sauronification, oh, okay. and and that'll be kind of the the Halbrand and Galadriel story of season two, oh, God, along with so bad. along with Muriel. Uh, I also believe Muriel is going to get back to Numenor. And that's when we're going to get the actual revenge fleet, like the 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 big fleet of Arpharazon, yep. and Arpharazon yeah, yeah. will use the uh, the weakness of the queen because she's now been blinded. And I think mm -hmm. they're going to tie the blindness to the Palantir in some way. Yeah, that makes um, sense actually. Yeah. Um, uh, but that 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 Arpharazon will use this to uh, to affect his his full trump, 
Um, but he will he will rise to power. He will rise to power. (laughs) He will put an army together, and they will go and keep the keep the orcs from taking anyone's jobs. Um, And then, (laughs) and then, um, uh, and so I think that I think that the finale of season uh, uh, of episode eight will be something like giant Numenorean revenge fleet. Uh, is either putting together or 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 headed back to the continent. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be uh, Halbrand. Uh, we we learn out we learn who Halbrand really is, um, and I think that there will be no payoff with the stranger thing. I think that yeah. we'll probably get a confrontation between the the stranger and the Morgoth cultists, mm-hmm. and that will that will reveal that will promise to reveal something, but I don't think it'll that just it'll, be more manifestation it. of his power. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we won't get like a huge payoff there yet. I think that trying to figure out who the stranger is, is going to continue to drag on through season two. So all right, those here, are my here's, predictions. Here's my hot take. Okay. Uh, yes. The writers don't know who he is. <laughs> they haven't figured that it out yet. <laughs> would be amazing. <laughs> that would be amazing. Um, yeah. So anyway, those are my, those are my speculations. Uh, I'd like to be really wrong about the Sal, the, 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 the Salbrand, Salbrand. Um, uh, I'd like to be wrong about that. Um, and I, I do think they're going to continue to play up the romantic tension between Halbrand and Galadriel and turn this into a love triangle. Demandriel. Salbrand yeah, and Demandriel. The 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 not the not the relationship Middle Earth wanted, but the relationship <laughs> that we apparently all deserved. Apparently, um, oh, what a um, great place and, to stop, Richard! My yeah, goodness. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think that's I think that's where season two is going. But uh, right. who knows? I could be wrong. I've been. I bet you um, we're all wrong about everything. I bet you they rewrite everything because the because the the viewing uh, numbers have been going steadily down. Something you aren't going to get unless you're actually paying attention mm. but um yeah people who knows? are not they're not people aren't loving it who it's knows and i will just say i will just say i'm i i always like to be an optimistic person mm. i there are a lot of shows where i think the first season first season kicks rocks and then they yes. pull it together in yeah. subsequent seasons yep. so who knows who knows yes we can always hope that that will happen well we're going to discuss the finale and uh all our associated thoughts, not next week, even though the finale comes out next week. We're going to wait another week because I think it might be good for us to have some space between the viewing of the thing and the um, the rants that will inev- inevitably follow. And perhaps, yeah. you never know, they might all be extremely positive because maybe they will tie it all together in an incredible nice way. nice big bow. Maybe Huge they're going to blow my mind. It could happen. Anything yeah. can happen. You know, it's, yeah. it's just, you know, you never know. So that'll happen in two weeks. Uh, so... There's that to look forward to. But in the meantime, uh, thanks everybody for coming by and listening and um, see you all in two weeks. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times. Available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud.